0: Through the fourth grade, the chicken nuggets and the tater tots, they can all be dismissed back to the Bible story that they're going to have this evening. The rest of you, if you would find the book of Revelation in the Word of God, the book of Revelation, chapter 2, how many of you have been able to invite someone that does not normally go to this church? You've been able to invite someone like that. All right, my hand is up. I was able to extend an invitation today. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. All right. And we don't know when God is going to... Listen, when you start trying to invite people, especially unsaved people, to a Gospel meeting, Brother Forsberg, all hell moves against the invitation. Because Satan has everything to lose if that sinner comes in and hears the Gospel. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If an unsaved person sits in this service and hears the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Satan has everything to lose. So He's going to fight against your invitation. Well, don't don't let that discourage you. Just understand that uh, it's going to take the power of God and I've got to go in God's power when I go to invite people to the services. Well, I've I've invited some folks. We'll see if they're able to come and uh, we'll see if the folks that you've invited will be able to come as well. Revelation chapter 2 is where we are. I want you to note what the Bible says beginning with verse 1. The Bible says Revelation 2 and verse 1 Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Help us, Father, as we look into this passage of Scripture. Lord, we need your help tonight. And I pray that you'd speak to every heart. I pray for those that are listening by way of technology. I pray that you'd speak to their hearts as well. Lord, we never know how far these messages will go as we put them online and send them across the the waves of the internet, and I pray that, Lord, that people that have that we will never meet will be touched by the impact of Your Word going forth from this place this evening. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. In this passage of Scripture, we have the first of seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. The book of Revelation was addressed to these churches. John and to the seven churches of Asia, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1 and so we understand that these were seven literal local churches now i don't mean to be uh, i don't i don't mean to split theological hairs but there are some that would come along and they would say something like this they would say these seven local churches represent seven periods of church history beginning with the apostolic age and coming all the way down to the present now, I personally don't believe that. There are a lot of good men that do. I haven't talked to your pastor. Maybe he believes that, all right? But the reality is, I have a hard time with saying that. A lot of people say, well, the, the church of Ephesus, the Ephesian age, was the age immediately following the apostles, and they trace them down through church history until they finally get to the Laodicean church, and they have us to believe we are in the Laodicean church age. And I don't know about you, but every time I hear that we're in the lay of the sea and age, I want to just close my Bible and head to the house. Because if uh, if if Jesus is on the outside as he is in the church of Laodicea, knocking at the door, asking entrance, and uh, and if we're rich and increased with goods and have and think we have need of nothing, but in reality we're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I mean, what's the point? I I, have, I ask myself when I hear men talk about that. I ask myself, is there any hope for revival? If in fact we're in the Laodicean age, is there any hope? And maybe there is an excuse why why our churches don't win souls like they once did maybe there is an excuse but i i I just don't believe that i believe in any age that god has 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 a group of people in churches that are on fire for god and that are serving him And my friend, today, we may not see as many people walk the aisle and trust Christ as maybe we did in the 1960s. I wasn't around then, I don't know. The 1970s, I missed most of those too, because I wasn't around then either. That may be true. I don't know those things. But I know this, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither His ear heavy that it cannot hear. It is only our iniquities that separate between us and our God, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. And so when we come to the Word of God, and this passage is Scripture, I believe that there are churches like all seven of these churches of Asia in existence today. I believe there are churches like the Church of Ephesus in existence today. I believe there are churches like the Church of Smyrna in existence today. And on, down the line, yes, I believe there are churches like the Church of Laodicea in existence today. But I believe, my friend, that each one of these has truths that we need to get a hold of. I believe some of the greatest revival preaching in all the New Testament comes from the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and so we want to look at this church of Ephesus tonight let's note some things about it the Bible says unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand if you were to go to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20 you would discover the seven stars are the seven angels I believe seven messengers I believe the pastor of each individual church God says the one that's giving you this message is the one who holds those seven stars in his right hand and he He walks, the Bible says, in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. The candlesticks are the churches. I want you to understand that God holds the pastor in his hand. Let's remember that, may we? Let's remember that when people in the community want to rise up against it. Let's remember and say, you know what? My pastor may not be a perfect man, but he's trying to love us and he's trying to give us the Word of God. And furthermore, the God of heaven holds my pastor in his right hand. That's what Jesus says when He is addressing the church of Ephesus. Furthermore, the Lord Jesus walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. What does that mean? That means He knows what you and I are up to. He knows what we're doing. He sees what we're doing. He understands everything that's going on. The Bible says He walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Therefore, it is no surprise when He says in verse 2, I know thy works. I know thy works. Again, there are people out there who have us to believe that After a person gets saved, their works don't much matter. I don't think they've ever read the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 where no less than seven times to each of the seven churches, God says, I know thy works. So He says, He begins to enumerate the works. Notice verse 2, I know thy labor. This was a working church, a diligent church. And thy patience. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they're apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne. And has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Wow, this is a great commendation, no from no less than the Lord Jesus Himself, telling this church, man, you've done a good job with some things. You've been a hard working church. The word labor there means laboring to the point of exha- exhaustion. You ever been there? You ever been there? Oh, we got a generation today, they want to get a paycheck, but they don't they don't want to do any work. <laughs> I wasn't brought up that way. My dad's house, boy, there were times that, uh, there were times that I got a lot of money in the paycheck, but I just want to, want you to know I pay, I, I worked for every single dime that I got. And working on the roof was difficult. The Bible says, thou hast labored. Then the Bible says, and that I know thy patience, verse two. Well, what does that mean? The word patience means to remain under a burden. I don't know if any of you have ever done any roofing, but uh, my dad was a shingle roofer, which means that we had 70 pound bundles of shingles that we had to get from the ground up onto the roof. And I just got to tell you, as a young man, that seems cool for the first bundle or two. You pick it up, you throw it up over your shoulder. I'm a skinny dude, I didn't have much padding there, so it kind of... It kind of rubbed my shoulder blade raw. You know, whatever bone that is, I just know it hurt. But you throw that up there, and then you go, you start going up the ladder. And man, you're thinking, man, I get a, I get a waltz into school and say, yeah, uh, I toted shingles as a laborer on the roofing crew all summer long. And people would look at me and say, wow, why don't you have any muscle to show for it? I know what they're going to say. But at any rate, it, it still felt cool to be able to go in and brag about that. I was doing a job in Minnesota one time for a church. I don't know how I got hoodwinked into that, but uh, there I was. And I, I was doing it, and, and the guys came to me afterward, and they said, you know, Brother Paul, you're a whole lot stronger than you look. I don't know if, I, if that's supposed to be a compliment, or what. The, what, what are you, how are you supposed to take that? Thank you, Bill Clinton. Get out of my face! What's the matter with you? I don't know, but anyway, uh, I would and you know you throw those up there, and man, then, then you start going up the roof. And yeah, some of the roofs are nice and low to the ground. You've seen houses like that, but then there's other roofs that got the two story thing going on. Where I lived, where I grew up in the foothills of the of the mountains in South Carolina, some of the homes were two stories on the front, and then they might be sixty feet from the ground to the eave in the back. There were some homes we would put a 40-foot extension ladder in the back of the dump truck and it would barely reach the eave. I don't know if you've ever gone up a 40-foot extension ladder when it's all the way extended. Looks like you have, Brother Rob. You get up there, especially with a bundle of shingles, and your body starts doing this. It's like a giant spring going back and forth. I'm just going to tell you, the thing that you want to do more than anything else is get to that eave and get out from under that burden of a bundle of shingles. It wasn't long, Brother Jeremy, before being a roofer's kid wasn't that cool anymore. I mean, it was downright painful. But you know, every time I think of that word patience, I think of toting a bundle of shingles. You want to get out from under that burden as much as soon as you possibly can. But patience says you remain under that burden. That's what patience means. And the Bible says here in this passage of Scripture, Thou hast borne and hast patience. Thou canst not bear them which are evil, verse 2 says thou hast tried them which say they're apostles and are not and hast found them liars thou hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted I want to tell you if we could close the Bible right there and head to the house tonight that would be a wonderful thing to say about the church of Ephesus that not every church in, in the book of Revelation did our Lord Jesus commend. not every church did He say you've done this right and this right and this right no 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 but this one He certainly did there were glowing commendations about their work about their patience there were glowing commendations about about their discernment. Well, the Bible says that thou hast tried them, which say they're apostles and are not, and has found them liars. You know what the Bible has to say in the book of Acts? In the book of Acts, chapter 20, the Bible says the apostle Paul sent from Miletus and he called the elders of the church. And you know what? He had nothing but bad news for them. He said a couple of things you need to understand. He said, first of all, you're not going to see my face anymore. He said, second of all, there are going to be grievous wolves. After I depart, grievous wolves are going to enter in among you, and they're not going to spare the flock. That doesn't sound good. And then he says, he said, i got more bad news. Also, of your own selves will men arise speaking perverse things, seeking to draw away disciples after them. You know what? Every one of those prophecies by this point in time had come true, and they had been through some battles. You know, there's something about the battle. Whether you win or whether you lose, it, it all, the battle always changes you. It always has an effect. I have friends, some of whom have been in combat situations in the United States military. I, I One of them went to be with the Lord not so long ago. But before he went to be with the Lord, I sat across the table from him as he began to recount stories of, of uh, his time in Vietnam. He says, I remember where we were the day we were overrun. He was missing in action for three months. He says, I can still picture the first man that I had to kill. And he began to recount the stories. He would not do so in mixed company because of the nature of them. But as he told the story, he Years, decades had gone by. And yet, brother Jeremy, he wept because battle changes you. The Bible says this church had known a lot of battles. They'd come out on the right side of the battles. They'd borne a lot of burdens. And they hadn't given up. But I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have someone against thee, God says, because thou hast left. They didn't lose it like we lose our car keys. They abandoned it. They, thou hast left thy, notice the word, first love. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. You see it there, first love in verse 4. Verse 5, first works. If you don't go back to the first works, I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. The word first is an interesting word. We can use it in several different ways. We can say first in the, in the, in the sense of priority. The United States of America, we speak of the first lady. The first lady of the United States is not the very first woman who's ever been an American, certainly not, but she is first in the order of priority. She is married to the president. And so we use the word first to, to apply to her. We can also use the word first in the sense of chronology. The first thing I do when I get up in the morning and then we can when we tell what we do before we do anything else. And so the word first can be used in many different ways. I wonder when Jesus says, Thou hast left thy first love. I wonder if he's talking about first in the sense of priority or first in the sense of chronology. I wonder if he's talking about the love they have when you first began or the love that ought to be supreme above all other loves. Likewise, the word first works. I wonder, does he mean the works that you did in the beginning or does he mean the works that are more important than all the others? I think, honestly, it's a little bit of both. Now, we may have an argument, not an argument, we may have a discussion and we could have an open forum in a Sunday school perhaps about what ought to be the most important works. First in the sense of importance. We could have a discussion about that, and maybe that's a profitable thing. But if we are looking for the chronological first works of the, of the church of Ephesus, we don't have to guess about that. We can find that in the Bible. So let's look, may we? Let's go to the book of Acts this evening, and let's look at the first chronological works in the church at Ephesus. We'll go to the book of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 19 is the story of the Apostle Paul as he comes to the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a very important city. It was a seaport, and it was also the western terminus, the western end of the Silk Road that went at least as far as modern-day Iran and maybe into India and maybe even beyond. And so, they would bring these uh, wares from the east to Ephesus, where they would be loaded on board ship, and there they would be taken to the rest of the Roman Empire. That was the city of Ephesus. And so we have the Apostle Paul. In verse 8, the Bible says, and he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened, and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them, and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. You ever had somebody in school that was a teacher or principal that was kind of like a tyrant? <laughs> That's what I think of when I think of the school of one Tyrannus. Can you imagine I just got accepted to the tyrant school. I I can't imagine. But anyway, the Apostle Paul said, that's where we're going. So the Bible says, he took all these disciples, he got them out of the synagogue where they had been saved, and he took them and separated them into a school, and there they met in this school building, this school facility. It was the school of one Tyrannus. And so the Bible says, they met there. Now notice what the Bible says in verse 10. And this continued, this meeting in the school of Tyrannus, this continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. I wonder, Brother West, does that mean what it looks like it means? The Bible says, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both Jews and Greeks. Well, you say, Brother Paul, does that mean that everybody in Asia heard the Word of the Lord? Yeah, it does. Now, let me just have you understand, when you read the word Asia in the New Testament, it doesn't mean China and India and Japan and Indonesia. That's not what it means when they say Asia. That's what we mean when we say Asia. In the Bible, Asia means the modern day country of Turkey. That's what Asia means. And the Bible says they were there for the space of two years in the school of one Tyrannus with the result that everybody in Turkey, everybody in Asia Minor that lived in that portion of the world, they heard the word of the Lord Jesus. Now, make no mistake, that doesn't mean they trusted Christ as Savior, but they heard the word of the Lord Jesus. You say, Brother Paul, what, what, what does that mean? Well, that means as people came and as people went from Ephesus, they did not come or go without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you something. Do you think the Apostle Paul was there personally giving the gospel to every single person that came and went through Ephesus during that two-year period? I don't think so. I think there were people that had gone out from that school of Tyrannus church that helped the Apostle Paul get the Gospel out. And furthermore, I think we may have stumbled upon one of the first works. Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, return to the first works. What are those first works? I submit to you, first of all, that the first work that we have discovered in verse 10 is simply this, a communication of faith. A communication of faith. What do I mean by that? I mean they were ready to give the gospel everywhere they went. I mean they went to the grocery store and they were given the gospel. They went to the... They, they went to the the gas station they, well, they didn't have gas but anyway they went to the donkey refill station whatever that looked like in Ephesus and they were given the gospel everywhere they went they were giving the gospel so that you couldn't you couldn't help but see one of these people and the guys would say well how long do you think it's going to be before he starts talking about this school of Tyrannus church and uh, how long is it going to be before he starts telling us about the apostle Paul how long is it going to be before he mentions the name Jesus Christ and how Jesus Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again. How long is it going to be? And I imagine that's the kind of things that the the people in Ephesus talked about. Why? Because you couldn't be a part of the Ephesian church without having the gospel emblazoned on your heart. And you couldn't have the gospel emblazoned on your heart without giving it out everywhere you went. And the result was, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. Do we understand tonight that every Christian has a responsibility to give the gospel? Do we understand that? Do you understand what Jesus was saying in Mark 16 and verse 15 when he said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? How about this? I love this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God which trieth the hearts. I want to say to you, preaching the Gospel and giving the Gospel, it ought to be an important part of our lives. And you know, it was a part of the Ephesian church's life in the early going. In the beginning, the Bible says that all this, this meeting in the school of Tyrannus, it was, uh, these people were fired up about the gospel. Uh, the apostle Paul was giving it out. And then this, these people got saved and they were giving it out. And everywhere you went, you heard the gospel. Matthew, the, the Bible, the Bible gives us a very interesting story in the book of Matthew, chapter nine. We read about the Lord Jesus. We read about him healing in all the villages and towns and all of that, and and the Bible says in verse thirty six. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having a, not having a shepherd. Then said he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. I wonder if in the Bible Baptist Church of Brookings, South Dakota, there's a we're, we're having a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Some of the, some of the, the the children are in a different part of the building and, uh, and it's, it's just the, just the normal folks here and so now we're going to have a time where we give prayer requests. We ask for people maybe to raise their hand and give a prayer request that they have uh, that they have knowledge of. And, and so some uh, raise the hand and they request this and others request that. And a stranger is coming to our Wednesday night service. We don't necessarily recognize him. But uh, as he comes in, he, he finds himself a seat there on the aisle. And as the prayer requests are about to be given, he raises his hand. As we look at that hand, it's got an awful, horrible scar. In that hand. We have no idea what's made the scar, but it's the size of a large nail. A nail that pierces through that hand and that hand is raised. The pastor says, yes sir, what is your request? He says, I'm new here, but there's something dear to my heart. You see, I'm asking you, the church, that you would pray for laborers. I'm asking that as you mentioned the physical needs of this one and the, and the medical needs of that one, I'm asking that you would pray for laborers too because the harvest is plenteous. But everywhere I go, the laborers are few. Let me say, I'm not the Lord Jesus. I'm certainly not omnipresent, but everywhere I've been, the laborers are few. Everywhere I go, there's a need for laborers. I'm thinking right now, Five churches in the state of Colorado, good churches, independent Baptist churches, churches that have some good people in them, but they're, they're struggling because right now they are in need of a pastor. Five churches. That's just in the state of Colorado alone. There, are, there are all kinds of churches that we could mention more in this state that are that are without pastors. Why? There's a need for laborers. Well, you say, Brother Paul, God hasn't called me to be a pastor. Well, you know, when we go out on Tuesday nights on visitation, there's a need for laborers there. When when it comes time to to do the the Christmas outreaches that the church does, there's a need for laborers there. We get into the summertime and it's vacation Bible school time. There's a need for laborers there. Everything we do, there's a need for laborers. In my my friend, where you work, there's a need for somebody to stand up and, and give the gospel to people. If you were in the, if you were in prime timers, a few of you were, if you were in prime timers on Saturday, I spoke to you about the great need of the hour, about the Apostle Paul standing and saying, "Sirs, I believe God. Wherefore, be of good cheer." If you heard that, I'm telling you, that has been on my heart. It's been on my mind. Somebody needs to be able to stand before a lost and dying nation and say to them, "Hey, you can be, you can settle the." You can settle yourself. You can be of good cheer because I believe God. The very boat that got us here may crumble beneath us, but it doesn't matter because I believe God. And you know what? The more I look into that passage, the more I see a man that decides I'm just gonna bo- I'm just gonna live what I've been preaching. And finally, after he ate, the Bible says, they all they all were of good cheer. Then they were all of good cheer. And I want you to know, there's some people in this room tonight, you'll never be called of God to be a pastor, but God needs you. God needs you to go to the places of business that you've occasionally frequent, and God needs you to be a witness for Him. I don't know what it was, Pastor. Maybe it was the battles. Maybe it was the burdens. But over time, this church had gotten away from the communication of the gospel so much so that in the in the end of the new testament age the lord jesus through the through, and inspires this letter to them and he says hey won't you come back won't you come back to the first love and those first works i want us to go look look at what the bible says in the book of acts chapter 19 the bible says in verse 11 god wrought special miracles by the hands of paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Oh, what an amazing thing. And today, some people come to me and say, well, you're one of those Baptists. You don't believe that God still does miracles. That's not true. I believe God works miracles on a regular basis. I just believe the difference between this passage of Scripture and today, I can't schedule God's miracles. Does that make sense? I can't schedule them. All right? Now, Benny Hinn thinks he can, but I, I can't schedule him, alright? And and so, you've, you've seen the, the faith healers, right? On TV, they come in and some of them pop somebody on the head and they fall down. Allegedly, they were healed of whatever disease. That's not my favorite. My favorite is when they blow on someone and they fall over backwards. That's my personal favorite. Can I just help you? If I blow on you and you fall over backwards, there's nothing supernatural about it. Just give me a breath man, and we'll go on with life. Okay, That's the way I feel about it. But at any rate, uh, that I can't schedule those miracles, but in the Apostle Paul's day, he could and did. Now, I want you to put yourself in the position of these people of the school of Tyrannus. They're meeting and somebody says, yeah, there's a guy that I know, a guy that I'm working with, and his aunt is very sick and it looks like she may die. And the Apostle Paul says, well, I tell you what, let's take this apron, let's take this handkerchief to her and let's see what God's going to do. Can you imagine him taking this handkerchief? What you got there? What you got there, sir? Well, my preacher told me to take this handkerchief to your aunt and maybe God will heal her. Ah. Yeah. Do you think they were any different in Ephesus than they would be today? What if you did that at work tomorrow? What if you said, This is an apron that my preacher has blessed? It'll cast the demon out of your daughter. Wouldn't you get some unusual looks? And yet, Why do we think that it was any different in Ephesus? Now the Bible says very very plainly that these handkerchiefs and aprons were brought to these sick and demon-possessed people. The Bible says that very plainly. I want to ask you, do you think it was the Apostle Paul bringing all of those things? Or do you think maybe he gave some or one to a church member and the church member brought? I kind of think it was the latter. I kind of think it was the latter. I kind of think that the Apostle Paul said, look, we've got a lot of people here and I want you to take this to this person and uh, let's just see what God will do. I want you to take this to that person and let's see what God will do. I kind of think that's the way it works. Now, the Bible doesn't say specifically, but I believe that here in verses 11 and 12, we have another of the first works. What was the first of the first works? Well, it was the communication of faith in, the, in verses 11 and 12. We have a confidence of faith. We have people that say, I don't care what you say. I don't care what your reaction is. This is our, our God is at work. Our God is in the business of doing the impossible. And if He wants to heal your daughter, if He wants to heal your aunt, He can do so. And we're going to bring these aprons. We're going to bring these handkerchiefs. And we're going to see what the God of heaven is going to do. Might there have been people that laughed at Him? I'm sure there were. But at least for a time, it didn't bother them, the mockery of the crowds. It didn't bother them, the unsaid people that had some awful things to say they still took those aprons they still took those handkerchiefs and they still saw God work miracles in in their behalf because they, they had an unshakable confidence in the power of Almighty God. And you know, I have I have to think that the Lord Jesus is looking out over that church in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and He's remembering those times. He's remembering the fact that when they, that they used to believe God could do anything and there was no limit of His power. And so they would risk great things on the power of God. But now, maybe it was the burdens or perhaps the battles Maybe they'd seen enough of the world to be a little more jaded. Until the first work of a confidence of faith had been left behind. And the God of heaven said, oh, I wish you would get back. wish you would get back. The Bible says in Hebrews 10 and verse 35, cast not away therefore your confidence. Pastor, I've been in the ministry long enough to know that there's a temptation to cast away our confidence. There's a temptation to get to the place where I've preached before. I know how to preach. There's a temptation to say I've won souls to Christ before. I know how to give the gospel. I know how to deal with this person. I know how to deal with that person. And there's a temptation to begin to rely on myself. And furthermore, there's a temptation to say, Well, once you've dealt with people like we have, you know how folks are, and we begin to lose that absolute confidence and the power of God to do anything. And in the in Revelation chapter 2, I see a Lord Jesus who died for the church, who gave his blood for the church. And he looks at this church at Ephesus and he says, Oh church, there was a day when you just believed anything was possible. According according to the power of God. But somewhere along the line, maybe it was in this battle or that burden, somewhere along the line, you, you abandoned your first love and, and you've gotten away from the first works. in church, I just wish that you would come back to those first works. As a matter of fact, if you don't, I'm going to re- remove the candlestick out of his place. There was a communication of faith. There was a confidence of faith. Note what the Bible says in verse 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, Took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. Now understand, they didn't know Jesus Christ as Savior. Okay, they were exorcists. They dabbled with and they played with the occult. Let me say, if that describes you, you got no business doing that. You got no business playing with the occult. There are demons, there are spirits that are alive and working in this world, and there's two dangers. One is you give them too much credit, and the other is you don't give them enough credit. But the reality is they're alive and they're at work. The Bible says Satan is the prince of the power of the air. There are people that try to hinder meetings like this. There are there are people that are open themselves up to demonic influence and all that. Listen, you don't have any business playing with it. Our God is greater than the God of this world. Let that never be forgotten in your mind. And And so these people, they wanted to play around with the occult and demonism. They were exorcists, the Bible says. And the Bible says, they took upon themselves, interesting word, they took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. I don't know Jesus myself, and I don't really know Paul, but I know that when Paul does things in the name of Jesus, things happen, I want to see some things happen, let's give it a shot. That's what they're doing. Look at verse 14. The Bible says there were seven sons of Sceva, of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are ye? Ah. It's, it's at that time that I'm out of there. Right? Ah, Jesus, I know. Uh-uh. Oh, just kidding, it was all just a joke, and I'm out of here. Well, that didn't that didn't work that day. Look at the Bible says. The Bible says in verse in verse uh sixteen, and the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. It it, it was gu- It was a bad deal. Mississippi, we'd say it like this. They put a whooping on those seven boys. One man. One man beat up seven boys. And the Bible says, not boys, that's a Mississippi term. A boy is anyone who's a male type individual. He might be a 70-year-old boy, but he's a boy. Okay, That's just a Mississippi thing. Verse 17, this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So here was a fellow that was a bunch of phonies, as these seven guys are a bunch of phonies, trying trying to imitate and mock and mimic the power of God, and it didn't work. And when it didn't work, it was a disastrous failure. It was an epic fail, as we might say today. And everybody knew about it. But then notice the effect beginning in verse 18. Notice what the Bible says. Fear fell on them all. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Verse 18, many that believed came. And confessed and showed their deeds. Many that believed, what does it mean? I believe this. These people that believed had already trusted Christ as Savior before the seven sons of Sceva incident. And as a result of the fear that fell on everyone, they sat up and took notice and they said, wait a minute. I know Christ as Savior. I've been attending the school of Tyrannus Church, but the reality is, there's things in my life that aren't pleasing to God. It's time for me to get right with God. So what did they do? The Bible says in verse 18, they came, they confessed, and they showed their deeds. Do you understand? I believe we've encountered a third of the first works here in the church of Ephesus. The first of them was this. They had a communication of their faith. The second is this. They had a confidence of their faith. The third is this. They had a confession. A confession of sin associated with their faith. There was a confession of faith here. What does it mean? It means that they became so burdened about their sin, they said, yes, my, my, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Yes, my sins have been washed away. But even right now, I am involved in iniquity and God has broken my heart about it. I'm not going to go on any longer. I'm not going to cover it. I'm not going to try to gloss over it. I'm not going to try to excuse it. I'm going to get right with God because God has put His finger on something in my heart. Oh, listen! We need to get back to an attitude that has a that has a brokenness over our sin. Here in the United States of America, we are really good at getting upset at other people's sin. We're really good at that. Did you see what the Democrats did? Really, really good about getting upset about those things. Really good. I'm very concerned with social media. I have made this statement here in this church, but I'm very concerned with social media because it puts you in a place of passing judgment. You can like, you can dislike, or if you really, really like, you can share. What does that do? It puts you in a position of passing judgment on a lot of things. A lot of things that maybe don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid it puts us in a place of passing judgment so much that we begin to think of ourselves as the judge, and we begin to think of ourselves as the one that 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 uh, that really is the final arbiter. That's not true. I'm not the final arbiter, and neither are you. There is a God of heaven that's the final arbiter. Here's what happens. When I am the authority for judgment, passing judgment one way or the next, I begin to look at myself, and I look at myself and say, hey, I'm not all that bad. And after all, I've judged so many other things. Let me just judge myself. I'm good. I'm clear. That's fine. Let's just go on. And everybody will be fine together as long as they're just a little bit like me. But these people came under conviction of their sin. All of a sudden, the sin of the seven sons of Sceva, it didn't matter to these people. The Bible says these were people that believed. They came and they confessed and they showed their deeds. There are two words in the Bible translated confess. The word confess comes from Latin. The word con means with. And the word means uh, has the, the, to do with speaking. So the word confess means to say with or to agree with or to to verbally say the same thing. That's the word confess. It translates a Greek word that means exactly the same thing. But that is not the word that is used here. The word that is used here means to say the same thing outwardly. Now you need to be careful with this, but there are some times when you need to confess your sin privately to Almighty God. But there is a time When God pricks your heart about iniquity, when it's time to confess openly, it's time to confess outwardly. That's what's happening in Ephesians, or excuse me, in the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 19 and verse 18. Verse 19, notice what the Bible says. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver is a day's wage. 50,000 pieces of silver. What were they doing? They were coming and saying, listen, we've been involved in the curious arts. We've been involved in in the occultism. We've been involved in these things. Yes, we show up every Sunday to the school of Tyrannus. Yes, we sit there in the pews. Yes, we hear the Apostle Paul preach. But God has gotten a hold of our hearts and we need to get these things right. And so they brought all their books together. They didn't take them down to the goodwill. They didn't pawn them off somewhere. They brought them down. They brought them all together. And the Bible says they burned them and it cost them 50,000 pieces of silver collectively. What is that? I submit to you that is a, that is a church that is involved in the first work of being sensitive to sin. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you can point to a time in your life when God convicted you of sin? Maybe you sat in your, in your home reading your Bible. Maybe you were, maybe you were listening to a podcast or listening to a preacher by way of the internet or radio. Or perhaps television. Maybe you were sitting in a service similar to this and God reached down and He put His finger on something and you realized, man, Lord, you've convicted me of this. I need to get this thing right with you. Oh, listen, I've been in times on services where God has put His finger in my heart and I've said, I felt like standing up and saying to the preacher, preacher, put it on hold. I got to get right with God. But you know, something had happened in the church at Ephesus. Maybe it was the burdens they had to bear. Maybe it was the battles they had to fight. But over time, they had become more and more calloused to sin. So that the Lord Jesus came to them and He said, Church, you've done so many things well. In the battle, you came out on the right side and came out on top. The burdens that you had to bear, you remained under. You had patience. You labored to the point of exhaustion. It's commendable. It's all commendable. But Jesus said, Churches, I look at you. I long for those first works. And you're not doing those first works because you've left your first love. Church, you need to remember You need to repent. And you need to repeat. Then the Lord Jesus says this, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except I repent. Pastor, in our, in our circles today, in our, the broader circle of evangelicalism, there are many books that are being written on churches that are disappearing all over the United States. Some people have talked about how the, the, the uh, evolutionary educational culture of our country is to blame. They would have us believe that because our children are taught evolution, that uh, that it causes them to turn their back on everything that they learn in Sunday school, everything that they hear in, in church. I'm certainly not going to argue with those that say such things, but I would argue this. As I come to the Word of God, it's not the world that closes down the church. It sounds to me like it's Jesus that closes down the church. Why would Jesus close down a church? The Bible says to this church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, he says, Remember therefore, verse 5, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. The candlestick is the church. Jesus said, it is I that will come and will take that candlestick and I will just pull it down and I will remove it out of His place if you don't repent. You know, as I read that, that, that is a sobering, sobering statement. It causes me to understand if, if, the, if my church, the church that I'm a member of, and the churches where I preach, if those churches fold, it's not the educational culture that surrounds us. It's not, the, it's not the, the millennials that are coming behind us. No, no, no. It's none of those things. It is the Lord Jesus Himself that removes the candlestick. Why? Because a group of individuals came to this conclusion. They said, I am no longer going to have that love for the Lord Jesus that motivates me to do these first works. And I wonder if you were the representative of Bible Baptist Church, if the church's first works were what you do, if your confession of faith and confession of sin and sensitivity, if if your sensitivity to sin was the sensitivity of the entire group, What would the Lord Jesus say about this church? If your confidence of faith represented the entire group, what what would the Lord Jesus say about this church? If your communication of faith and your getting the gospel out—if that—if—if if, if, if everyone in the church did it like you did it—what would the Lord say about this church? My friend, I don't think anybody intends to abandon their first love. But I think it it happens little by little. I think that's exactly what happened to the Church of Ephesus. Father in heaven, I pray that you'd work in our hearts tonight.